0: Welcome back comrades to Utopian Cartography, for another expedition into the unknown regions of the future to discover hope, real hope, beyond the illusions handed down to us by previous generations, that greed is good and war is inevitable because there'll just never be enough to go around. As George Carlin said, it's all bullshit folks, it's bad for ya. I'm your host, Neon Felicity, and I'm here to tell you that we can have a positive future. Our guest on today's voyage is Isis Indria, co-founder of Living Village Culture, a collective of educators and creatives dedicated to bridging art, immersive experience, and activism through event production, education, retreats, and ceremonies. We met a couple of years ago when I started working for The Compass, a project of Living Village Culture that curates the philosophy content at Lighting in a Bottle, my favorite conscious festival. In the conversation you're about to hear, we talk about the ritualistic roots of theater, reaching back to sacred rites in the Horus Temple, where the ancients had a more active relationship with their myths, understanding that they manifested all of our lives, so it's better to be involved in communion with them, rather than merely as a passive recipient, the way commercial culture renders its consumers. We discuss how we're always creating something, and how the act of ritual is a way of intentionally manifesting the beauty we want to see in the world. We talk about the colonization of prayer, and how part of the program was to cut us off from our innate power as vessels for the life force of creation. Now we can relearn an authentic relationship with our own thoughts, words, and deeds. We talk about the nature of a decolonized spirituality. And how we can conceptualize God as the chaotic structure of the cosmos itself, which is at the same time a unified system and an incomprehensibly diverse matrix of different densifications of the original light that birthed from nothingness in the beginning of time. We are all unique expressions of this singular divine life force, woven together in a web that we can commune into to help us align our will with the will of the cosmos so that we may act on behalf of all life and transcend our parochial egotism we talk about what this esoteric conception of the divine implies about the way we should organize society. She describes some foundational principles for structuring healthy small-scale societies around honoring the voices of everyone involved where things can still actually get done through a system of councils based around people's particular pathways within the society, their roles in the communal effort of coexistence. I love the way she describes the central importance of art in creating the imaginative space into which a society can evolve and how growing our own food not only nourishes our bodies, but teaches us about our relationship with nature itself. She makes the crucial connection between education reform and our ability to reevaluate our value system, which I believe is the single biggest shift that needs to happen for us to achieve a positive future, where we can all have the opportunity to discover and do the work that is our true purpose in this life. We discuss what reconnecting with our ancient history can teach us about our own divinity, And what we need to do to heal our ancestral traumas and create the new perspectives that are necessary for us to achieve real social justice and actually manifest a harmonious world that works for everyone finally we talk about the project of re-inhabiting the village and how our intentional gatherings and the genuine community bonds they facilitate are so monumentally important for us in this time of great transition we have to learn from indigenous communities how to be part of the ecosystem again because they still remember it was only recently that we forgot Evolution is the key to a utopian society. The only way to utopia is to reform our education system, to allow people's unique, innate, creative intelligence to emerge, and thus manifest a real culture of belonging for us all. So thanks for joining us in this map-making endeavor to envision the path towards a world worth living in. Hi, Anna. Welcome to Utopian Cartography. Uh, I'm here with visionary curator, transformational experience designer, and decolonial neo-pagan ritual theater director, Isis Indria. Welcome, Isis.
1: Thank you, Mia. Good to be here.
0: So, yeah, um, I guess we'll jump into the philosophy of it all in, in a minute, but I guess you want to tell the audience a little bit about yourself and what you do and how you got into it, and why, and yeah, and your, your vision for Ritual Theater and all that the things you do.
1: Thank you. Um, my name is Isis Indria, born in Mesa, Arizona, raised on the island of Guam. Uh, I'm currently living in Nevada City. This is the territory of the Nisanan. So I just want to honor all the ancestors here of this land, the Nisanan. And also honor my ancestors, Hapa Day, um, my ancestors, of Chamorro ancestors too. Honor your ancestors and just really acknowledge our ancestors first. I have been in, quote, event production for the last 20 years. Um, What really led me into event production was through journeying with different medicines and psychedelics, I started seeing little fairy beings and gnomes everywhere, particularly when I was working with psilocybin and mushrooms. I was about 17 years old, and I started seeing them everywhere, and I wanted to learn more. And I found my way, obviously, to the dance floor. And so I decided I wanted to start. And at the time I was studying with the power of myth, Joseph Campbell's work and Carl Jung, and really getting into mythology, which to me is the way that I choose to live. And so then I started throwing events called Seelie Court, which was where the fairies and interdimensional beings gathered to dance. And if a human enters, they disappear for a hundred years. And so I started throwing events for each of the different fairy tribes, because so I was them. So I wanted to honor them. And then from that, one day, a dear friend who was doing events called Starseed, Michael Manahan, he came to me and he said, "Um, would you want to collaborate and do events with me? And then I brought my my partner, Osiris, in, and we were given this Oracle crystal ball. And from this crystal ball, we started learning about oracular vision work and how to ask the crystal ball and listen and also receive information and give information on how to produce events. So it's really ritual based. And then from there we created the Oracle Gatherings, which was a 23 card tarot deck. Um, and each event was a tarot card, and we, you know, educate workshops and ritual and classes and theater and music all around that archetype. So the community, it took us 10 years, went through a 10 year journey through the archetypes. And this again, very inspired by Joseph Campbell and mythology, mm-hmm. and growing up in Guam too, being told legends as a child, and you know different places on the island have a legend associated with it, and the trees, the, you know the tata Tanos, the tata Monas and the trees. And I'm still even remembering the legends and the myths. Really, you know, they're mm-hmm. they still are coming alive in me and around me. And so from the work of the oracle gatherings, I met Eve. Mm-hmm. And um, we came together around ritual theater. It was actually the King's Chamber was the name of the tarot card. And I remember we became friends through our dear friend La, And I asked her to be segment, mm-hmm. which is like full circle because now we work with segment all the time. You know, it's just interesting how things unfold. Mm-hmm. And that's how our relationship began. And um, we started doing ritual theater. She was doing events in San Francisco too, so we're both doing event production. We were also both Kabbalah students. She was studying more Jewish mysticism. I was doing more Hermetic Kabbalah through one of my teachers, William J. Kuzel. And we came together around ritual theater. And I feel like now it's you know it's definitely over 15 years, and we've not only ritual theater, but really the art of ritual in general and learning how to commune with the mystery, um, the sentience of creation and the life force of creation that lives in everything human and non-human and learning how to build relationships and expand our awareness on the interdependent web of relations that exists in the web of life.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And then from there, create really the world, the beauty we want to see in the world which has turned into Ritual Theater, our Serpent path worker Living Village Culture, which is the name of our company that also curates for the compass at Lightning in a Bottle, which is how we met and connected.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That really is about conscious education, curation, um, music, performance that has a very specific intention and ritual associated to it. And the really learning from our elders and wisdom keepers so that we can give something in a good way or offer something that's on behalf of our time for future generations to come, you know, and then really centered around the fire and the water. You know, the fire and the water are primary places of learning and community and prayer. And so everything starts with the fire and the water and then we grow from that place. Mm-hmm. So there's a very... Short overview. I hope I answered
0: your question. <laughs> yeah. <Okay. laughs> Definitely. Would you say that the, that the ritual theater is a way of promoting the beneficial aspects of ritual itself? Because the, I, I think of art as a magical thing that, like, puts ideas out into the world and can therefore shape the world. And so I was curious if the ritual theater was a way of Spreading the beneficial aspects that can be gained on a personal level from having a ritual practice and You know connection with the elements in nature and so I was wondering if the theater aspect is like a way of spreading that practice or inspiring people to integrate a ritual practice into mm-hmm. their life.
1: It's a great question. Well, the roots of theater is ritual theater. You know some of the first recorded ritual theater productions are particularly in Egypt in the Horace Temple, and some of the living traditions of ritual theater are a very semi well-known examples in Bali, you know? So ritual theater is very much about connecting into the ceremony, into the ritual, performing a rite on behalf, a rite as an offering, on behalf of what's needed in the community or a conversation or communion with an element of in nature, initiation. A rite of passage that is needing to unfold, and really to build that relationship with the spirit world and physical world and commune in that unified field for the offering. So ritual theater is a ritual. And when we, oftentimes when the story is revealing herself through us and around us, it's all based on the ritual that is needed for the community and as an offering into consciousness. So some, what happens is these moments, these visions will start to arrive. And then when the first spark of inspiration comes up or, or that spark of imagination, then we go directly to our practice to commune with the spirit of the story. And in the story, we start to communicate what is happening in the world, um, what new stories, what old stories do we need to study so that we can consciously create a new story as a gift and offering and a way to make the beauty we want to see in the world. And oftentimes in that, so the ritual begins then. And what often ends up happening is that somebody comes naturally to be the initiate for the story. And then they're willing to perform the, receive the initiation on behalf of the whole. And the key with ritual theater too is there's no boundary between the performers, which are really the vessels of the archetypes is what we are and yeah. the audience because everyone's needed for the actual rite to be performed yeah. so it's a living embodiment of a ritual happening in the now we're only able the story only reveals herself up to a certain point because the magic comes alive in the unknowingness yeah. of the finale ultimately which is the final part of the ceremony and really ritual theater is connected to myths and i you know i love this idea of like a somebody's personal story that becomes an experience it becomes a myth that becomes a legend and something joseph campbell really instilled in me is that you know myths and legends all come from somewhere they're living stories that have actually happened and right now at this great transition and this turning the time for new stories is so key because they manifest for the stories we create in our mind about ourselves about each other about the world we start to make with living thoughts words and deeds
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so with ritual theater it's consciously offering this right to make the beauty we want to see in the world it's a living experience and by nature i feel like it re- helps those that maybe are finding it for the first time again in this life because they mm-hmm. generally people have come and experienced in another remember the a sacred relationship or a sacred way to really honor the ancient stories and help create the new ones.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it creates this circle of intention and mythology, which is, is one of, it's absolutely my favorite thing to do.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I learned so much. It's one of my greatest teachers, because it's like always teaching me in the ritual way of life, how to listen, how to pay attention, become more aware of the information that's showing itself in the life force that's within everything. And so it helps me become more attuned and in communion with myself and the unseen forces and the seen forces around me. And then the relations that unfold from ritual theater have a whole new octave of communication because by nature, through the rite of communing for this piece, this offering, these new passages in the brain and consciousness open up because we then become initiated into this group vessel for the story to reveal itself through all of us. Right. It's a constantly living growing ritual.
0: Right. That's amazing. So it like grounds us as living the story rather than it being out there, culture mythology being some just a collection of stories that are out there. It helps us to realize that those stories exist through us. You know, where that the that culture is just this big thing of all of us living out these story, living out the archetypes. And I feel like corporate pop culture is like designed to make people feel small and insignificant and important because there's these big celebrities up there that they're they're the, they're the ones who matter you know and it's like this fraudulent enterprise because it's like creating this thing that's like not based in the more organic stories that are based on life and the, the actual patterns and nature so yeah that's that's beautiful what can a ritual practice do for us that just contemplation can't because in my, you know, Western education is like, just, you can sit in a desk and think about it and there's not like any practices involved. And so I was wondering, like, I guess you kind of already answered that question as to like the involvement and the ideas and it makes us feel more empowered and more like we matter and that the world like needs us. And I feel like that's part of the time that we're in is like everyone needs to realize that the world needs us because there's trajectories in place from colonial systems that were set up and that have been playing themselves out and are now kind of like that story has kind of become defunct and so it's like we're we're trying to figure out how to create a new story it's like colonialism like wiped out all the stories of us being a part of it (laughs) and just like replaced it with this story of you're just a servant of this king of the universe there's this one god and he has this one church and it's a big hierarchy and
1: well, I, one thought, one thing I could offer that I said and I can say a little bit more about is um, how I see it is, you know, we're always creating something, we're always moving forward, mm-hmm. you know, we learn, um, hopefully learn from the past, learn from where we came from, and then that experience helps us in manifesting in a good way.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But it's something I've been taught quite a bit and sort of distilled my own format from is. From the spark of imagination that becomes thought, that's the first step in manifestation, mm-hmm. contemplation, thought. From thought, there's the word, the deed, the habit, the behavior, you know, the word, the action, the deed, the habit, the behavior that becomes destiny. So there's this like line of manifestation of creation and in ritual, the difference I find from contemplation and ritual, because ritual is performing an act with intention and performing an act with an awareness of the relationship of the human and the non-human world and then and also the brings in the art of tending so we're tending to our thoughts through the art of manifestation because you know the the tibetan Shambhala prophecy talks a lot about how you know the world is monomaya and it's made by the human mind and unmade by the human mind of course with the heart i'm going to always acknowledge the heart i, I kind of see the heart and the mind always working together in that way Mm -hmm. we allow it Mm
2: -hmm. so
1: ritual is performing the act making the beauty one wants to see in the world with intention in a sacred container and and creating a sacred environment a a space for that and then it's an art form of communion with the divine because i find you know, we do rituals every day, like you know, there's the, the classic like you know, brush your teeth in the morning, your your first glass of water, you know, there's all the the habits, the things that we do, they, they all are can be and are rituals. Mm-hmm. And then there's ritual with intention, like when we pour that glass of water, greetings to you, holy water, thank you for my life, thank you for that that you are life, that I come from you, you know, how you talk to the water. you know there's a lot going on about Yamoto's work with water. That's a different kind of ritual that manifests in a different way. There's the unconscious drink of the water because you're thirsty, and then there's the conscious drink of the water, the water is life, and water nourishes our system. When we come from water. So there's all these various layers and depths w- which we could travel with ritual contemplation, I find, is a tapping into the like web of consciousness, this like field of conversation, in a way, and this net. Alex Gray talks about Indra's net, this net of consciousness where it's there's a weave, it's woven, and he talks about Indra's net, I'll, I'll do my best to explain it, that at every point in the weave, there's a jewel, and it's a multifaceted jewel, and any point, you look at the jewel, you see all the jewels of the web reflected inside of it, again and again and again, so it's this holographic universe. So in the realm of contemplation and, you know, the work of emptying the mind, um, I find that, at least for myself, I tap into this web of consciousness that is a web of relations, Mm -hmm. and that in itself is a ritual. And then the act part, when when I'm learning in that place and tapping into this field, the act of the ritual is manifesting consciously, a communion, an offering, building a relationship, a dedication, devotion, in a sacred way.
0: Mm-hmm. That's how I like to mm-hmm. commune. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. That's beautiful. <laughs> and that, that concept of tending to it is, was a, that was a big, uh, light bulb for me at, at, at your workshop at IB in the art ritual, because I've, I've heard you refer to the technology of prayer. And it, at first I didn't quite understand the way in which it could be a technology but then the, the way that you i love that line of manifestation that you described because that's how i think of magic is a, a way to set things in motion like a consciously setting in motion manifestation like of, of like making things happen and I, our minds are doing so much subconsciously that i feel like if prayer is able to organize our thoughts around if it's like setting in motion our subconscious processes towards trying to figure out how to realize some desired goal, and because the reason I'm super interested in it is because so much needs to happen right now because so much is under threat, like the ecosystem is collapsing, and and then you know it's kind of become a like a punchline that you know politicians you know when it's shooting or a natural disaster some politicians are say, oh thoughts and prayers so it's been kind of like a way of not actually doing the things that could help to solve problems and so i, I was wondering about your thoughts on like how that happened like was it the church that you know
1: colonized prayer I mean, yes <laughs> i absolutely feel like the term prayer and the act of prayer has been colonized and it's confusing people and taking people away from their own power and their own connection to the divine and the life force of creation. I absolutely think that's what's happening and has been happening. Uh, Absolutely. And actually, my really dear friend, Vita Majd Watson, we talk a lot about prayer and um, at one point I was like, Vita, would you please do a talk on the technology of prayer? And she was like, okay and then mm-hmm. i remember she went on this incredible multi-year really journey of studying prayer and has come up with this incredible talk
2: mm-hmm. on the
1: technology prayer and she did just did 2.0 this year mm-hmm. so i really want to honor her right now mm-hmm. and you know say that she's done a lot of actual scientific research on the technology of prayer
2: mm-hmm.
1: and mm-hmm. so i want to bring her up here now mm-hmm. highly recommend checking her out mm-hmm. Prayer to me, because the colonization of prayer and how prayer works, I feel like has been part of the programming Mm -hmm. to essentially steer us away from our own innate relationship Mm -hmm. to ourselves as vessels for the life force of creation Mm -hmm. to move through us Mm -hmm. and ourselves and our connection to the elements of life and the elements of creation and our relation to the sacred and to these benevolent, Life force energies that are here to be of service with us, you know. Uh-huh. And so, prayer kind of because of what these various religions have done. People hear the term prayer, they're more alternative, and they kind of cringe because and naturally. Uh-huh. And so, part of my prayer has been uh-huh. to decolonize uh-huh. the term prayer uh-huh. and really help to bring out the true or, you know, the an authentic relationship with prayer because everyone has their own authentic way but I've an authentic way of relating to one's own thoughts words and deeds and how that comes into manifestation
0: on that note of decolonizing prayer i was wondering is part of the problem monotheism because i've been trying to i've been struggling because i was i was raised catholic and went to a catholic high school and took college theology classes and you know left the faith because i determined that it was an insufficient explanation of, of the world. And then, so I've, I've been wondering recently to what extent it's the, you know, like uh, Vandana Shiva called it um, monoculture of the mind. You know, the whole idea of like, that there's just this, that's so why I, I call it, I call it the, you know, the king of the cosmos, you know, jokingly because it's like all the wisdom traditions of the world have all these different archetypes and like honor all the different archetypes. But then it's like Christianity and the Abrahamic monotheisms. Like, there's just this one guy, you know, with a beard, and you know, everything has to go through that. And so I was wondering if part of the the decolonization of spirituality would be a retreat from this supposition that there's just there's the, the, that there's just one God. But on the other hand, you know, I like I, I do think of like everything as like the universe as being unified. So like when I think of God and I think about the universe as this like single system that, you know, is all, you know, connected to itself. And so I'm like, should I be thinking of that as God? I don't know. I'm just, I'm so like torn about this like concept of God because so many people that I respect have more expansive conceptions of it. And so I'm trying to figure out what is the healthiest conception of God and because part of this the whole utopian cartography project is trying to figure out how we get to a better world and religion is a major organizing institution and and, cultural train of thought and so that's it seems really important to figure out how to reframe or restructure spiritual practice you know on the large scale and so i'm wondering if it's polytheism or a pantheism or how would you characterize a general spiritual ideology that is not colonized by that singular king of the cosmos idea i'm trying to figure that out because i want to be able to explain to people, and that's all these years of trying to figure it out. How do I start a podcast? Is to talk to people like you about it. You oh, <laughs> seem like you have a very emancipatory conception of spirituality, so I was just curious, like, how you would characterize that in a way that people can integrate into their own thinking about God and what that is.
1: Well, the way that I see it, the way that works for me, is I see the World is a there's a cosmological structure to the universe, and there's an order and chaos, so everything is what Joel Levy and Shelley would refer to as chaotic.
2: Right.
1: And from those two principles, I love this poem that I once or this phrase that I once heard, a phrases. phrase out of nothingness, birth this fountain of light, and this fountain of light started to densify become more and more dense and in its art of densification still very much light order and chaos started to form and then from that these polarities and emanations um, diverse expressions of this light densified and densified and densified that became different attributes that thus became elemental grew into Aspects of being and personalities manifested into more dense forms So I see the way that I relate to God in various terms Even the Ein Sophia is this These emanations, it's very Kabbalistic these emanations, these expressions and various layers and processes of formation from limitless light into densification, Mm -hmm. that have archetypes, qualities, attributes, virtues, Mm -hmm. vices, diverse expressions, Mm -hmm. that are expressions of the divine. Mm -hmm. And that's how I see God. Mm -hmm. And I see in myself that part of my learning in my relationship with what God and the divine means to me is learning these cosmological structures and principles to help me understand myself more and my own connection to the unseen and the seen realms and the divine to thus help me not only see the beauty in the world, but create the beauty in the the world because I don't believe God is outside of me. I don't believe that I am the Messiah either, (laughs) but I do believe that there is this potential and this, innate wisdom, information, energy inside of my divine human temple that I chose to be born into in this life at this time for a reason to unlock, open up, help me gain more access and really connect into the web of consciousness, the web of relations. So it feels very spider-like where it's, you know, weaving the world, weaving the web and also feels like a part in it where in the web itself is this to me this divine consciousness and i'm an aspect in it so i have my own diverse expression of it yet i'm within all of it Mm -hmm. too so it's both Mm -hmm. and you know this concept of free will where you know free will comes in where we have the right to choose how we see things brings in, you know, perspective and like Wayne Dyer says, when you change the way you look at things and things, you look at change and how perspective plays a role in how we create the world. What I find for my will is as like a human that is realizing my own divinity as a diverse expression of the divine in connected to this web of diverse, expressions of the divine that is all part of one divine web my personal choices not only affect my perspective in life but they affect the web itself every small act since ripple affected to the web and so part of it is for me the learning and rem- really the true realization on the responsibility of that every day deepens and grows and also to help me become more aware of how to align my will with this group will, it is the will of the divine on behalf of all life moving forward. Mm-hmm. Because everything that I do affects the web of relations and web of life and everything that is happening in the web of relations and web of life helps me, affects me. Mm-hmm. So there's this wake up, shake up, that's a wake up of the divine human nature that has responsibility mm-hmm. to care for and uphold and tend to the web of divinity that is everyone and for everyone, human and non-human. Mostly non-human. Yeah. So when I'm tuning into God, I use that term often. Our creator is the term I choose to use the most, or divine, beloved. And sometimes I'm traveling and I hear Allah everywhere. Yeah. When I'm communing with that life force energy, I feel like I'm communing into the web. Yeah. That's how I drop into it, and then I see myself as a jewel in the web. And no matter which direction I'm looking, forwards, backwards, diagonal, up, down, circular, any direction I'm looking or tuning into, I'm making offerings Those are reflected inside of it, this holographic universe. And so when I'm praying to the divine, with my imagination, my like thoughts and my words and my deeds and making offerings to help strengthen the web of relations.
2: Because
1: right. I see that I'm an instrument, I'm a vessel for the life force of creation to move through me gracefully and easily. And so I have to keep tuning this temple, this body here and this mind and the, and the heart and all the organs. And I have to keep tending to it, tuning it, taking care of it so that I can really take care of and make good offerings in the book, too.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. Definitely. I feel like that that conception of it goes towards the shift that I see as necessary from a conception of ethics as just what it says in a book versus an actual consideration of the impact of a given thing that we do or say on, as you say, the web of relations, because I've generally been conceptualizing that as um, post-human ethics. It's going to be the last chapter of my book. It's going to be on how we design it, or how we conceptualize an ethical framework that is beyond anthropocentrism. It's like the church said that humans don't matter and we're just here to serve Yahweh or whatever towards the modern era where it's like, oh, well, humans are the most important thing to I think where we are going and where we need to go is towards a conception of uh, that everyone matters. It's not just humans. And so I really like the description of that, that everything we do and say is a ripple effect through the web. And I also like the general framework of a web because I think the new paradigm is fundamentally hyper-democratic and it's less of a hierarchy and more of a network. And so I really love what you said about the jewel at the, at, the, at the nose that reflects the rest of the network. I love that it's a new conception of it. So what do you think that conception of the divine and our relationship with it implies about the way we organize society? Because part of what's organizing our society now is this hierarchy where, you know, God supposedly put some people in charge and that's why they're in charge, as opposed to like, considering the fact that they just did some conniving shit to get there. So I was was wondering, like, what do you think a more post-anthropocentric conception of God and ethics would say about the way we organize our society and set up our economy and our civic structures? A lot of it is so anthropocentric that I've been trying to figure out how the society will be structured such that because I do think that we'll get to a point where, you know, we, we still have human rights crises going on, but I, I think eventually we'll get to a point where animal rights will be much more prominent. And you know, I can imagine the time in the not-so-distant future where we first give citizenship, or not, maybe not citizenship, but some legal rights to you know, maybe apes and then dolphins and then you know, like, and we, you know, yeah. we work our way into the rest of the ecosystem,
1: and I love that.
0: And so, I was wondering, on that? On
1: um, what are some ways to organize a new society? Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, that's a big question. Right. I've, you know, I feel like I'm still learning, but I can share how I feel at the moment. Yeah. I'm sure it'll evolve tomorrow, <laughs> and next right. week, and next month, <laughs> and forever. Right. Um, something that I find really interesting is Dom and her. I went with my ex partner many years ago for an intentional communities conference Mm -hmm. because I, for a while I was studying intentional communities. And, um, there was a couple things about the way they organize their community that I'd never heard before. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it's happening elsewhere, but we share these ideas. Well, first off, I feel like societies where everyone actually has a voice by nature are going to need to be smaller Mm -hmm. because the reality of everyone having a voice being heard. I feel like beyond maybe, I don't really know statistics, but beyond 600 to I feel like is, is kind of unrealistic,
2: you know? <laughs> yeah.
1: Maybe I'm, I could be wrong, I hope I'm wrong, but that's sort of how, that is how I feel about it at this moment. Mm-hmm. So I feel like values and relations, of uh, some spiritual connection is key and primary that everyone somewhat agrees upon. Mm-hmm a way to like come back to the sacred in some fashion in that particular society is necessary whether the term sacred is used whether the term prayer is used or spirituality is used some kind of communion that is beyond the human that has is based in like respect and integrity and really interdependence i feel like is a necessary consistent practice um, the other piece that I find, you know, the way that we do it is like the sweat lodge or a human circle or, you know, oracular rites yearly. We are yearly rites. The other thing I find is really interesting and important, and so Dominic does that. I'll get back to Dominic in a second. I'm skip just just over here. Is in an ancient Egyptian tradition, it is shared in stories that there were these 42 ideals of moths. And it was an internal system of checks and balances and in their stories and in their belief structure, that when the body died and the soul was on its journey into the afterlife to the Osiris, their heart, the heart of the soul was weighed with the feather of justice and harmony of Ma'at on the scale tended to by Anubis. And it was weighed against the 42 ideals. Then they had the chance for the 42 confessions. And the the goal is that the heart is lighter than the feather and then the soul passes into the afterlife. If the heart is heavier than the feather, then the soul gets eaten again by the hippopotamus crocodile and then goes back and has to do a new life.
2: Yeah.
1: That to me is really interesting because everyone's raised with these or then was raised with these forty-two ideals, this internal system of checks and balances. Mm-hmm. And with the awareness that when death came or eternal life. This was going to be your quote judgment
2: day. Mm-hmm.
1: But what it did, it create it, what I believe, and what I'm doing my best to follow now, mm-hmm. creates this self-checking mm-hmm. system okay. that is um, has things like I keep my own counsel, I I respect the property of others, um, I speak positively of others, mm-hmm. I honor animals with reverence, I keep the waters pure.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, there's 42 of them. And a lot of it is reverence of self, reverence of the group and resident, reverence of the life force of creation. Like that, an internal system of checks and balances for self-awareness is key. A group agreement around some sort of connection to the sacred that's human and non-human, that's coming from a place of reverence, respect, integrity, care on behalf of all beings. And then a process of decision making where all the voices are included in a way where things can actually get done, also. And that's the challenge. And this is where dominant comes mm-hmm. in. This is something I thought was really interesting. We haven't quite practiced this yet, and I'm looking forward to actually experimenting with this. Mm-hmm. From what I understand, the limited amount that I understand at this point was that their community is divided into you make a commitment when you commit to join the community. For two years, you're going to be in service to one of the eight pathways of education, whether it was like a regular pathway or building or farming or whatever it was, make a two year commitment. Again, this might have changed. This was like 20 years ago. So I'm just going to speak what I remember. And then in that two year period, you have counsel that's related to that part or that pathway of the society, and where everyone counsels. And then I don't know if it was like monthly or bi-monthly. That group chooses a leader and then all of the leaders of each group come to a council mm-hmm. and they, that leader's responsibility is to speak on behalf of the group. Mm-hmm. They counsel about topics to dynamics, et cetera. Simultaneously, there are two people that are always in commit to a six-month meditation practice to meditate on behalf of the entire community so that the are form of visions and, um, a tune in can, that voice can be heard. And then the whole community votes. Okay. Maybe you know, we need more music in the community. Let's or we need musical understanding. Let's we vote that so-and-so will meditate for six months. This musician, we also, we need like more of the painter's perspective. So we vote that this painter sits in meditation for six months. So simultaneously there's two people that are committed to meditation every day to then bring the visions from the meditation to the community. Simultaneously, the two-year commitment each person makes to a part of the community a spoke in the wheel, pathway in the wheel, they meet with the council of that spoke or pathway in the wheel. Then that council, they all appoint one leader and the leaders come together to council as a group. And then the, the, the next thing they have, that I think is really interesting, mm-hmm. And I would probably do it a little bit differently, but I love this concept. It's related to the art of meditation, ultimately. Is they have this oracle clan where they people bring questions to the oracles, and then the oracles ask the fire the questions and they receive information from the fire. So there's this relationship with the elements. Yeah. And a lot of indigenous native traditions, you know, pretty much indigenous anywhere, they're is a relationship with the elements and the elements communicate. And I feel like that is a really important part of society that we've lost that communication with the elements of life, the nature, communion in that way. Like that is a very important part of it Mm -hmm. in a big way too. And then I also feel that, I mean, I've drawn out my vision of intentional community, so I'm I'm going to go back to that it's been 20 years, but I did it. I feel like. It's a
0: beautiful concepts of.
1: <laughs> and I mean, again, I mean, you know, we're we're diverse species. You know, we're made up of you know the earth and different stars, and so you know, I feel like different groups are going to have a way that works for them. Mm-hmm. But there are these basic principles that I do feel like are useful mm-hmm. for smaller okay. societies. Right. The other piece I feel like is really important is art as a central focus, the creative imaginarius imaginary exploration of creation so that new pathways and the brain and perspectives can open and to do that together so that that can help inspire and thus inform the evolution of the community and i also feel like communities or societies there needs to be a thread of evolution on um, the in spoken wheel so it cuz i don't feel like it can ever just be our society is made up as we follow a b c d and e there's got to be like an F that mm-hmm. is unknown. Mm-hmm. Like a place for the unknown and the mystery uh, to communicate so that the evolution process is always open-ended. Almost kind of like hand fasts, mm-hmm. where like when two people come together instead of like getting married forever to death to part, mm-hmm. make a commitment for one year.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then you come back that next year, you make a commitment for two. Mm-hmm. You come back that next year, then you do four, you double it. Mm-hmm. Then you do eight, then you do sixteen. So it's like really allowing evolution to be a part of the society's growth pattern, yeah. versus having to bump up against a resistance to it. Because mm-hmm. um, it's unnoticed the center of it all, in, in a way, you know, right. it's all of the unknownness. I also feel like, and uh, it's a reminder for myself because I haven't done this in a while. I feel like growing food and like building a relationship with soil and plants and like lying on your seeds and watching your seeds grow food that nourishes your body Mm -hmm. and coming together around growing food, I think is for various reasons so important, of course, obviously, because of, you know, you're making the food that you're going to eat. And also the like learning about healthy soil and how healthy soil works on the brain and in the body and in the heart. Mm -hmm. And then also the really together having these very clear whims where you plant a seed, yeah. it grows into this beautiful you know, bok choy, you eat the bok choy, goes back into your body, it's the cycle of life and death and then also seeing what one small act can do that okay. can nourish itself and thus nourish the community and then also that it's changing, right. there's a changing nature to it and it's impermanent yet right. the permanence is the continued cultivation. Right. You know, mm-hmm. so like it brings in the art of tending and cultivation and mm-hmm. helps people receive a, a win of some kind, a mm-hmm. nourishment and thus a feeling of belonging because it's an earth based practice. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's a learning that is so key. And mm-hmm. you know, obviously gratitude, mm-hmm. you know. So those are some ideas on some, I could go on. I mean, I could literally talk about this for hours. <laughs> so I hope those are some yes. useful yes. keys
2: to totally. your question. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> In
1: the form of money, money's an interesting one. Value is an interesting one mm-hmm. because of what our society has determined, what has a higher value or a lower value. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like something that we probably can all agree on is that we need to reevaluate our value system Right. and you know, labor and time and money and energy and mm-hmm. how that all works because everyone's diverse. Everyone does things a little bit differently. Our education system obviously has been a programming dynamic, and so we're being forced to do things in our archy nature and are not our purpose work, and so we're not able to really come forward with our full energy in a way that feels natural because it's not,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know. So there's obviously an entire education reform yeah. at play mm-hmm. that. Will is necessary for us to reevaluate mm-hmm. our value systems
2: right. to yeah. then
1: create an equanimous society that is based in people doing what they're really here to do, right. or why they chose to be born at this time. Right. And I believe that as we discover that and do that, all the parts and roles that make a society function in a healthy, loving, really thriving way will be built. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, but part of the journey is discovering our purpose work. Mm-hmm. And feeling the support and the really the worthiness and that there's enough to go around to actually do that. Mm-hmm. You know?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: As the systems are breaking down, you know, we're really building new ones, it. just like Buckminster Mr. Fuller talks a lot about.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, but I also feel too that as the systems that we've been programmed to function in are breaking down, so must the programs that we've been Right. function with right. have to break down, right. and that can sometimes lead to like this gray line. around what's saying, and instead, right. so, yeah,
0: mental health crisis in the world. Such a- yeah. It's a
1: big moment for our species, it's we're a huge right. moment, right? Yeah, yeah, I feel like we've been here before, just looked a, looked different,
0: right? Yeah, totally.
1: Those are some of my thoughts on your question, <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, that's what you yeah. Because I was gonna say about the disconnection from the process of growing around food part of that was the education system it was like this forced process where they had to train people how to sit in a factory and just like just make one part of a widget over and over and over and over again all day and so i feel like we set up this education system which like is what Installs, you know, our primary culture into our minds, it, it, it's obsolete because it was designed for a previous time before we, I don't know, like back when we first started inventing factories and they're like, yeah hey, we need some workers in here. <laughs> but nobody wants to sit still. Like,
1: Such a big one. We we'll talk about that one all day. <laughs> right.
0: Oh? Mm-hmm.
1: Shoot, I have to go. I
0: All time flew.
1: Oh, wow. Hold on a second. I could keep talking with you though. <laughs> Should I just have this call real quick and then
0: see where we're at? Sure. Yeah? yeah. Does that work for you? Yeah. Okay. So I see a big part of the problem that we're facing now as historical amnesia. Like people don't know where we came from and so they're vulnerable to believing big lies about like who matters and what matters and you know, like because people don't know what got us here. And so I was wondering your thoughts on like what reconnecting with our ancient past can tell us about the future and how we should go forward because it seems like we're stuck at an impasse because we don't know the long story that we've been evolving from
1: i mean i am a huge student of ancient civilizations for the very reason of you know i feel like the lack of awareness or understanding of our true history is a big part of how colonization what it's done and continuing to do. Because if we don't know who we really are or where we come from, we don't understand really our own innate intelligence and really the depth of pathways in our body and the wisdom and the water in the body and the, all of those things, and thus don't know how to move forward in a good way. I really feel like there has been a colonization or, or a plan, a program, to basically shut down... A lot of passages in the brain and access to the intelligence stored in our DNA and our body systems. Mm-hmm. And at this time, when all of these things are being uncovered, like technologies, or tech, really technologies that have always been there, but we've been colonized to believe that or understand that there's something different than that they actually are, like the Great Pyramid, as an example, mm-hmm. as more of a true understanding of these ancient structures, and these artifacts, and these myths, and these stories are really being revealed. Everything we've ever thought we are, or who we are, or where we come from, is changing and going to keep changing, and thus we're going to learn more about our ancestry that shows us actually really our divinity, and helps us gain more access to the innate wisdom and intelligence inside the body to then help us Create more passageways and perspectives to thus create the new innovative ways of living and being and technologies for the future. We got to go back into the past to learn, heal, do the ancestral healing that we haven't done, take care of ourselves and our lineage backwards, thus, so that forward we're creating a good pathway forward. I feel like so much has. So many artifacts and temples and scrolls, like Alexandria, have been destroyed on purpose,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that has been a primary way to keep us shrouded or cloud and clouded and ignorant. And all of that's changing. I really believe all of that's changing in a way with sort of the all of these new tech, the technological advancement of this time mm-hmm. is. Obviously, there's shadow aspects to it, but the positive aspects to it is it's helping us see things and uncover things that have been hidden, consciously hidden, as you know. So this is a really exciting time. And with this great unveiling that is happening and this new awareness that is blossoming through the unveiling, thus major transformation, major shadow work, major ancestral healing by nature has to happen for us to go to the next level. And also new innovative perspectives are also birthing because that's what we need. imaginative, innovative perspectives and artists to help craft the technologies for these new perspectives and artists in every sense of the word. I believe everybody's an artist. They just have a different kind of art form that they work with um, so that we can create this or, or be part of the unfoldment of what is creating. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we really need to protect the children's imagination, the kids' like, imagination is like of utmost importance. Not only protect, care for, listen to um, what the children, the new children are saying, and also do what we can to keep our imagination growing and blossoming and flourishing mm-hmm. so that we can thus imagine, think, say, do, create, our destiny together, the beauty we want to see in the world. I love that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. And that leads into my next question, which was about your project of Living Village Culture. And I was wondering about a thought on how these immersive experiences of community can transform people into more caring, compassionate, conscious members of an emancipatory collective where we're all working together to improve each other's reality. And so I was wondering, like, what is it about community, experiences of community that are so profound for people in helping us to rediscover our social roots? Because we've been trained to think that, you know, you're just an individual alone in the universe or whatever, and everything, everybody's separate. So, uh, like, where does community play in the transition to the new world?
1: Well, I love this, like, um, everyone's unique together. There's there's like a, there's a unity in our diversity. Right. I love that. It's true. Oh, yeah. oh my God. It's amazing. <laughs> Thank God we're not the same. Right. Um, <laughs> living village culture was birthed by you and I together with our friend Benja Renaco. He he was the first person to attend the first living village culture fire. So I just like to acknowledge him mm-hmm. that way was created out of this, you know, idea that, you know, Festival culture is, in some way, a conscious or unconscious desire to experience village life in some form in a modern day. You know, I grew up in where I'm from, One every area is referred to as a village. Yeah. It's multi-generational and familial, and, and so in a lot of ways, I feel like my part in our, our duo dynamic is to help create the village that I was raised in, in some modern way, too. Yeah. I feel like that's maybe why I was attracted to festival culture too, because it's some unconscious or conscious desire to experience village life. So living village culture is to create a living village culture where it's a way of life. culture in, in the culture, there is music, art, performance, education, rites, rituals, multi-generational relationships, you know, elders, children, adults, teens, multi-dimensional human and non-human relationships centered around a reverence for the sacredness of life intended to through the educational process that then and, and really to galvanize the activist potential of the people to thus like bridge build networks and really to create a culture of belonging because everyone's included everyone belongs everyone has a place everyone has a spoken wheel they're unique diverse, quality perspective way of doing things is necessary for the whole and so a lot of the work of the compass is to help people find their purpose that internal compass of where really the the work that their purpose work they're here to do where they thrive reveals itself to them and thus find themselves amongst a community that is also doing that so you feel a part of something everyone has a role Everyone feels supported because the other roles are attended to and cared for. And there's this feeling of like, we're in it together. A lot of our elders and wisdom keepers say over and over again, like, keep gathering, keep gathering, gathering as much as you gather, as much as you can. Because as the like systems that we've been programmed to function in are breaking down. And so does our programming in our own minds. While we're going through these intense moments of transformation, being together, is so key so we don't feel isolated, alone, um, sometimes, you know, taken by our traumas or our ancestral healing dynamics that can sometimes take over. Instead, we feel a part of a group that is also on that journey together and everyone has a different piece of, a different way to share that can help inspire and or support. And then also uh, um, with a commitment to, you know, healing, a commitment to healing so that we can then really be part of the ecosystem again. Because, you know, humans were always part of the ecosystem. It's only recently yeah. that we haven't been, you know, yeah. in this spectrum of all the species many times that we have lived here and some survived the floods and then we populated. like a lot of the ancients but this has happened many times. Mm-hmm. And we're I feel like the the youngest we've ever been as a species and A lot of these indigenous communities and frontline communities really are still part of the ecosystem. They know how to tend to the ecosystem. We've just forgotten, you know, and part of the healing and the focus on ancestral healing and the caring of self and the caring of each other is to take care of ourselves so that these traumas and dynamics aren't clouding our ability to remember what it means to be part of the ecosystem again and thus take the time to learn. Um, I feel like the only way that our species obviously is going to survive as if we become part of the ecosystem again. And really the need to survive also needs to be freed up because you know, the will to live at the cost of everything else living this crazy program that we're in also needs to shape change like this healthy relationship with the cycle of life and death. And that, you know, every passing of a life, every death feeds another life. We're just part of this, eternal cycle, and that, you know, I am food for a nourishment for another life form, and that feeling good, part of the reciprocal flow, you know, life and creation, I feel like a healthy relationship with death is a big part of it, too, to help us release the obsession to live at all costs, and the obsession to progress, and this, like, progress obsession against All other things living, Mm -hmm. I feel like we're having to heal and take care of that, and then remember that we're part of an interdependent web of relationships and ecosystem. We're one part in it.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, that's definitely the lesson that needs to be learned and the experience that needs to be integrated. So that's uh,
1: Chief Seattle. I I know the quote by heart, but he says something like, "Every small act sends a rippling effect into the web." It's a little different than that, but every small act sends a rippling effect into the web. We, we are all related we are all related whatever we do to the web affects the web and the mindfulness around how we are made of a web of relations. Some of my languaging is in there but that's really a lot of what Chief Seattle talks about and I feel like that's a really important message that I'm continuously learning about I feel like it's a learning that never stops you know
0: yeah I guess that's how enlightenment works <laughs> <laughs> and utopia that both are constantly a thing to be aspiring to. We can never get there no matter how far we progress towards it. So, and speaking of which, I guess to wrap up, I know you're a very busy woman and got a lot of big projects to get back to work on. So thank you again for your time today. This has been an amazing conversation. And I guess uh, I'd love to leave our listeners with like a one paragraph synopsis of your vision of Utopia. I guess you've elucidated it pretty clearly in the last answer and then in, in many of the answers, but I've been trying to ask all these visionaries that I'm speaking to, like, what are the main points, the main aspects of a society where, you know, you would think, oh, we got there, or something that that's worth trying to work towards, you know?
1: Well, first off, I just want to say thank you for inviting me to be part of this podcast and really deeply appreciate who you are and the purpose of what you're doing here it's so beautiful and I just want to honor it and like bless your journey it. it's already blessed so I just want you to acknowledge the blessing of it yeah it's continual so thank you that's a very big question you know I feel like I have a lot of things to think about and feelings and I have contemplated this for a long time and something I've noticed even from you know In 2001, we drew out our own community, like literally mapped it. 2019, 18 years later, it's different now from then. And so I feel like part of the utopian society is this acknowledgement of evolution and growth and that things will change. And as we grow, how we care for and tend to adapt to the changes that we're having, our community's having, the Earth is having. It's like an adaptive, Adapting nature, as I feel like an important part of the utopian society so that we can really allow ourselves to evolve and grow versus resist it. Something that is really important to me now that I imagine for the future is education reform and I'm so sensitive to use this term because I do feel like this term has also been colonized, but I am a big fan of the mystery schools from the past and that the kinds of education that we're a part of these mystery schools, older ones, I don't know very many modern day ones that still do that, Um, I feel like I'm in service to recreating at this time. Um, I feel like when we create an environment for new educational platforms and thus people's individual intelligence, unique artistic perspective and purpose, um, in the nature of crafting the reality we want to see in the world. Once we start to do that, as we're doing that, really the vision of a utopic society that is made up of everyone's vision can unfold because it's multiple perspectives that make it utopic because everyone's included, everyone belongs, everyone has a role. So I'm only one thread, one jewel and the matrix of it. And so I feel like These schools are a beginning for me. You gotta answer that. Man, I could talk about this
0: forever. (laughs) Really. Have to have you back on. I would
1: love it. I mean, because now I'm like, after the dad, there's like,
3: And forces cannot possibly forcefully blot this osmosis of all beings We are the seams of forgotten dreams Woven together they create a tapestry of oral traditions Poetic lore noetically fostered across the centuries And they are all but a small blink In the rapturously vast expanses of mother time and her denizens Spaceships hop from stars more ancestors of sky peoples And cloud beings were forged lies and deceit Cannot flourish in the guises we see in as beings, evil gaijin's deeds will not always be prominent. Hegemonic forces will be reconquered by more dominant arising species. Immortal, like the techniques we were taught by the best and meekest of all. We are not carnivorous, it seems. We are omni, from potency to presence and prescience. Heaven and hell are within us, but there are many heavens and hells. Just as there are many divinities in As such, we worship too and the goddesses from dawn to dusk. We're missing many beauties in our oddity. Existence isn't foolishly wrought. None can barter the worth of the prizes of earth. Rise to your worth and flourish, yet not in the guise of your birth. Constant evolution is the island of immortals, and we are vying towards it with purpose. Flying from bottomless gorges to the skies that nurtured and fostered our minds. And our hearse is always, and our hearse is always...